Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Andrew Lunetta is the founder of A Tiny Home for Good, a not-for-profit organization in Syracuse that designs and builds single-resident tiny houses for homeless people in and around Syracuse. To date, his company has built 21 homes for homeless tenants across Syracuse, with five more homes under construction. A 2014 graduate of the Maxwell School with a master's degree in public administration, Lunetta is our guest today on the podcast to talk about his efforts making lives better for the homeless population, where his drive came from to get involved in this line of work, and the role Syracuse University played in his career. Andrew, thank you so much for making the time to join us here on the podcast. Sure, John. Happy to be here. With your story, I love the fact that you're driven to do good, to do a greater good for those who need it the most. And when you talk about homeless people, we, we all drive around the city of Syracuse. You see them on the underpass of the, the highway. You see them along different stretches of the city. It's definitely a problem. How would you describe the homeless situation in Syracuse? And, and I guess how big of a problem it is from your perspective? In comparison to other cities similar sizes, uh, it is significant, and Syracuse tends to have higher numbers than some other places. And the reasons for that are, are, are varied, but I would argue that one of the biggest is just a lack of affordable housing, um, housing that's safe and um, in a condition that can promote permanency. And I think that that's a huge driver of homelessness in cities, um, Syracuse being one of the and when it comes to then making a direct action to take the people off the streets, no better way than having a house, you know, that they can actually call their own. And your organization, a Tiny Home for Good, has just been remarkable in, in turning around these lives of people who are down on their luck. Before we get into the ins and outs of the program and the company, how did you come up with this idea? Sure. Yeah. I, so when I was, uh, I went to, did my undergrad at Lemoyne College. And while I was there, I got to know the homeless population really well. I had the opportunity to work at one of the two local shelters in the city. And I spent nights as a shelter aide there just meeting the men who called that place their home and hearing their stories about, you know, why they were there, their life history. Um, and then seeing the same faces over and over, the same people moving out of the shelter only to return after a couple weeks, a couple months maybe. And, um, started visiting some of the places they were moving to, and it became abundantly clear why they were leaving the, those apartments. They were untenable roommate situations, codes, violations everywhere, just places that didn't really promote any sense of permanency. So I had the opportunity to just spend more and more time learning the problems, and that's kind of where a tiny home for good came from. And I was thankful to have that experience working at the shelter. It really kind of led me to what I'm doing today. You know, it's often uh, said, as much as we try to make our own luck, sometimes people just have, if they didn't have bad luck, they'd have no luck at all. And a lot of these people, I'm sure, never envisioned a life on the street for themselves. You must have heard sure. some fascinating stories of people that just couldn't get a break and couldn't quite get that, oh, you yeah. know, that little hand up um, to, to be able to get themselves, because nobody wants to be homeless. You want to make a home for yourself and you want to have, a, have yeah. a, a life that you can be proud of. I mean, I've heard tons of fascinating stories. The one story that really 
you know, spans most of the population facing homelessness is that no, I would be hard pressed to have met someone who had both parents stably in their lives. So to have growing up in a family that's supporting them, that's, that's, um, you know, cheering them on, that is doing their best to support them really was absent for a lot of the men and women who face homelessness, not only in Syracuse, but across the country. And that was like the, one of the, you know, resounding pieces that I really like came to know when working at the shelter. And it, it humbled me knowing that I came from two parents who cared for me deeply and knowing that, you know, I was very much had the opportunity to go to Lemoyne and then had the opportunity to go to Syracuse very much because I had two folks in my life who cared a lot for me. And sure, there are a bunch of crazy stories, but all of them kind of started with a family structure that was just shot. Yeah. And, and, and it just goes downhill from there. You can't fix the homeless crisis yourself. You're doing everything you can um, with your with your company, with your nonprofit, and it's really remarkable to see the difference that has been made. And I'm sure, and we'll get into the impact that these houses have on the residents who are now having a home and being taken off the streets. But when you first started this, be honest: what were your goals, and how big of a difference did you feel your company could have uh, on this societal problem? When I first started, I, I remember writing out. So when I was at Maxwell, um, it's class of 2014, and, and as we were approaching graduation, I had this idea to start a tiny home for good. And, and I remember in the middle of um, kind of like our last semester, writing out this five-year plan, like where a tiny home for good was going to be in what would have been 2019. And we had ended homelessness in Syracuse. We were moving on to Rochester. We were doing all sorts of stuff. And you know, the, the wheels of reality just spun a whole lot slower. And that's totally fine. Like, I'm glad that I went in with that enthusiasm. Um, but now that I've been in it for what has amounted to five years, I get a lot more satisfaction out of seeing the individual effects that we have on our tenants and how the house that they're provided with, that they're paying rent on, that is now their own, is really making significant steps to to seen a better life for them. But to say that I was just, uh, you know, you know, going to take it one house at a time right when we started would be it would be a lie. Like I had all these aspirations and still do really have these aspirations to end homelessness in Syracuse and beyond. But just the timeline is now a little bit more realistic than when we first started. You know, it is funny how the dreams that the big dreams we start off with and eventually, you know, reality kind of sets in and not to say you get jaded, but you, you learn what's, what's doable and what's attainable. And there's nothing wrong at all with saying, all right, I'm making my mark. I'm, I'm making an impact on these 21 people's lives who, again, didn't have this resource before they, they came in contact with you. For sure. And, and the other piece is that I think it's really important to start with that huge audacious goal. I think it's really valuable to attack a problem thinking that you have the ability to end it. And you just might. But as you know, it really starts moving, not kind of losing that sense of your mission. And I'm thankful that to date, I haven't lost that, you know, passion and, and um, consistency in my work, but it's just with a little bit more um, reality wrapped around it. Now, before we go into, again, the ins and outs of, mm-hmm. of the, the company and how you're making a difference, I want to address the current situation with the coronavirus and the, the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we're hearing all these stories about people who might face evictions coming up at the end of the month and the beginning of August. And, you know, nobody, it's a scary, scary time if you've lost your job and you have no way to provide, you know, for your family. 
Is this something, Andrew, with your, your company and your efforts with homelessness to combat it, do you think that it's going to have a, more of an impact because more people might be needing help and a handout given the climate that we're in right now? Well, perhaps. I guess what I can say from a Tiny Home for Goods perspective is that our wait list before the pandemic was full, I anticipate our wait list during the pandemic to continue to stay full and after to stay full. I don't think I can have enough information to say whether the shelter numbers are going to jump up. Um, but I have to imagine that there'll be more people needing beds once, you know, the restriction on evictions is lifted. Now, to, just to speak a little bit more about how the pandemic has affected our work, uh, I feel as if it is, if it's done anything, it's reaffirmed my belief in a tiny home for good and providing a house for someone facing homelessness who may have been living in a shelter with 115 other people two feet away, I think is the very best protection against something like COVID. Um, I feel like offering someone the ability to actually shelter in place and stay home has been the best protection. And sure enough, that has been the case for our tenants where no one has been sick yet. Um, Sure, I think people are getting antsy and want to go back to programs and to work that they, um, you know, care for. But people are safe, and I'm and I'm thankful for that. Walk us through Andrew the process. You know, from soup to nuts. How do you go about getting you know these tiny houses built? How do you go about picking the people who are going to be the recipients of this home? You mentioned there being a waiting list. You know, run us through the gamut of this process for how you go from you know you obviously want to help people out. How does it work? Sure. I'm, I'm thankful. Back to your question about like, where did I see us five years ago or something like that? That process has shifted as the reality of what we're really doing has come into play. So for example, when we first started, um, I spent two years raising money and trying to find property and lots of neighborhoods said no. And it wasn't until we just ended up buying a piece of property just south of downtown. You can literally see the dome from our first parcel that we built at did I realize like how we were going to do this? And we had the parcel and it wasn't until we started building on it that I also realized like we're going to be doing the building. Like I, I just had this idea in my head that we'd be building these tiny homes and I didn't really put two and two together that it was going to be me and a group of very dedicated volunteers doing the building. So, you know, I, our day to day now is I spend half the day with my tool belt on, on the job site doing the construction and the other half of the day is spent working with our tenants or fundraising or writing grants or kind of thinking bigger picture. But as an organization, we acquire vacant land, we build small appropriate homes for one person, and then working with case management partners, we identify tenants that they believe would be good fits for our houses. And once we hear from them, give them a quick interview, and if it makes sense, they sign a short lease application, excuse me, a short lease agreement, and they begin paying rent based on their income. And that case ma management stays with them. I provide um, a form of case management as well. And we really hope that it works out for our tenants for a long, long time. There's no time limit on our guys staying there. They can stay for as long as it's suiting them. It could be their home for life. And I'm comfortable with that. That makes me happy. Now, you mentioned it being, um, you know, an appropriate uh, decor inside the house. And these tiny homes, if I understand correctly, Andrew, are about you know, 300 square feet, they're enough to, to live comfortably, especially considering those who have been, again, like you said, in shelters where you're kind of on top of each other, you don't have any privacy for yourself. Can you describe what the inside of one of these houses might look like? Yeah, much like how I think this whole organization has started, it, it has shifted. We started with one design and 
after receiving resident feedback kind of in our next set of builds change the design a bit to whereas now we have this really kind of what I think is a really sharp setup where you walk in and you're you're hit immediately with a living room and a and a sharp kitchen space with a washer dryer in the corner and then you know you have another room where there's the bedroom and off that is the bathroom so it's not the kind of like tiny home nation that people see on HGTV or that TV show there's not the the beautiful hidden cabinetry and stuff like that but it's well-made efficient and what I would say pride producing for our tenants and um and I think that the kind of design that we've settled on uh, most recently is what we're going to stick with for a long time. You're out there doing the construction. Do you have a background in construction yourself? Do you have no, a background? Man. In- no, no, I don't. And uh, <laughs> the first couple of houses we built was a serious learning curve. So I would, you know, go in the morning, go to our building supply store and buy a bunch of stuff. And then in the evening, return half the stuff because we didn't need it. And I remember the very first day I showed up to the, our job site when we were ready to start framing. And I was there with one other volunteer. And he had a battery and a, he had a drill, a saw and a battery. And we just had one battery and we were tossing the battery back and forth to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a serious learning curve. But with us doing the construction, it allows us to keep it affordable. It allows us to keep building at a faster rate. And frankly, I didn't realize that how much of this, the construction piece I would really enjoy. And um, so short answer, no, I didn't have a background in it, but now I, I'm, I'm well-versed in it and, and thankful that I've learned those skills as well. What was it like the very first home that got completed and the very first person that was a recipient of one of these tiny houses? What was the experience like of, of com- seeing the project to completion and, 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 and take me through the interaction with the recipient, what it was like to give them this first house of their own? So I think the, the interaction started well before the houses were even built or well before a tiny home for good was even on my radar. Um, our first tenant, his name's Dolphus. He's still with us today. And I had met Dolphus when working at the shelter. And he was someone who was constantly in and out of apartments, in and out of the hospital, facing, you know, some significant mental health challenges and um, the occasional substance abuse issues. And when I thought about a tiny home for good, it was very clear I wanted it to be built for someone like Dolphus. So in some of those harder times, the two years leading up to when we finally, you know, broke ground, I often thought about Dolphus. So his face was in my head as we were kind of like going through this whole construction process. And then we finally finished July 22nd of 2016. And we had this, you know, sharp ribbon cutting that my board of directors thought would be a great idea to publicize. And a lot of people showed up and that was great. And Dolphus cut the ribbon on it and I gave him his keys and just kind of walked away and, and uh, it made me happy. And I remember showing up the next day and he was out there mowing his own lawn and just realizing that if he didn't, you know, care about that property, if he wasn't happy to be there, if he was in an apartment that drove him crazy, there's no chance he'd be out there mowing his lawn. And it just made me clear that what we were doing had some legs and had the ability to build more and, and it's proved to work. And um, I'm glad Dolphus is still with us. I'm glad I get to see him on a weekly basis. And, and um, so yeah, it's just reaffirming, man. That's what it is. I'm sure there hasn't been a shortage of, of pitfalls along the way, you know, whether it comes to the fundraising aspect of it, the, construction part, not being a, a trained foreman or handyman yourself to, to build a lot of these houses. Can you go through some of the, the challenges and obstacles that your company has faced in getting off the ground? 
Yeah, so the biggest challenge, uh, when we first started, um, I was under the impression, I mean, you look around Syracuse, there's a whole lot of vacant land. Um, old houses that have been knocked down that are now properties owned by the city or the county. And I was under the impression that we could build on these, provided they were donated to us. And the city and the county both agreed to give us some of these properties, provided we could get some neighborhood support. And so I remember, you know, right when we started, I was going around knocking on doors, like super excited to share about a tiny home for good and excited to share that we'd be building on these new par parcels and, and telling people that, yeah, and we're going to be renting to homeless people. And as soon as I said that, doors were shut in my face. And we had really ugly community meetings that, that went south because people just weren't, um, couldn't get behind, you know, living next to a couple individuals who were homeless. And I started changing my language after that. I went from calling people homeless to like using the term like people facing homelessness. So not necessarily labeling someone as homeless or more like just it being like they were sick. You know, you don't say you are cold. You say you're, you have a cold. So someone who's homeless is just kind of facing homelessness. And as I started changing that language, kind of the tone changed on what kind of work we'd be doing. But for those first two years, finding that first bit of property was really, really difficult. Um, but after we got our first and built and showed that it was a success, it started rolling and more donations came of land and resources and the ability to build. So that was the big, big, big obstacle up front. To date though, I would say that an ongoing concern that I have is my ability to provide adequate support for our current tenants. So we're not renting to, you know, um, MPA candidates, you know, we're renting to men and women who have faced a lot of years in the shelter system who come with some baggage. And it's, I think, incumbent on myself and their caseworkers to keep them housed. And I'm getting better at figuring out how to best do that for some of our trickier tenants, what kind of coping mechanisms we can use, what incentives we can build to make sure that our houses are both, you know, kept, um, kept clean and kept safe, and also that our tenants are happy being there. So that is, I think, a concern that we're gonna have, especially as we grow. But um, I'm feeling a lot more confident over these past two years now than when we first started in our ability to keep people housed. You brought up a really interesting point about, you know, if someone's sick, they have the cold, but they're not the cold. Right. And when right. it comes to this population, it has to be, you're right, difficult to separate the fact that somebody is facing homelessness and they're not just a homeless person because there's such a stigma that unfortunately does get associated with people that are homeless. Your mind automatically goes to the stereotypes and, and the worst of the preconceived notions. How are you able to work when it comes to donors and community partners and, and Syracuse in general at separating the fact of they are homeless versus being a homeless person? I think that the first thing is that I don't, so, so when our tenants move into our houses, um, they're now tenants, right? They're not, they're not residents. They're not, um, they're not our clients or anything like that. They're tenants. They're paying tenants who now are no longer homeless, who are in a place that is theirs. And I take a lot of pride in saying that. So there's that piece where they're no longer homeless. They are now, you know, tenants who are just like any other neighbor who is paying rent to a landlord. There's that piece. And then the other is doing my best to share the stories of our tenants who are whether they're working part or full-time or volunteering with a tiny home for good on a regular basis, doing my best to share those with our donors and with the outside community. And like all marketing, I could be doing more of it. I could be doing 
you know, more targeted pieces to different people. But I know that when I do share those stories of our tenants, it's some of our most effective pieces. And I think it's incumbent on me to do more of that, frankly. I wouldn't beat yourself up too badly because you've done great work so far in giving 21 people a head start and a home that they previously didn't have. I know you mentioned Dolphus being the first recipient. Can you share some other success stories of responses, um, how these homes have helped spark people's turnarounds, getting their lives back on track? Sure, I can do two. And, and I, one, I just kind of, I, people often ask that question. And I refer to um, one of our tenants, James, who, you know, shovels the walk of every single property that's in his kind of area. And, you know, recognizing that he would never like kind of take care of those pieces if he didn't care deeply for that place. And since that point, he was able to go back to OCC and, and attain a degree and is now working. Um, he was at least before COVID working full time at Applebee's is looking for other stuff. So I'm really proud of that guy and his ability to kind of really make the best of what was a terrible situation for him. So that's one. And, but the other guy who has really been the lifeblood of our organization um, is Dale. And we started building a set of properties on the south side of the city. And Dale was living in a tent around the corner from there. And he would just show up in the morning before I even got there with materials, just like eager to get after it, eager to do something just to work. And like the dude would work from sunup until sundown, like harder than anyone else out there. And then he would go back to, to his tent and then he would show up the next day and just do it over and over again. So by the time we finished the builds at that site, you know, he had put in tons of hours on that particular house. And so it came naturally that he was going to take it. And since that point, Dale has, you know, got his license back. He has been driving. He is now working with us um, as our property manager and, He's out with us every single day, just really just, as I said, the lifeblood and a real affirmation for our work. And there's a ton of other stories of people have, you know, found work or have reconnected with family, but James and Dale are the two and Dolphus, you know, I could say a lot of the, our tenants, but it's just, it, it makes me really happy to show up to the job site in the morning and see Dale's little Ford Ranger already there <laughs> unpacking, just ready to get to get at it. And, uh, it makes me smile every time. We talk about purpose-driven work and really never having to wonder about whether the work you're doing is, is having a good impact. And the fact that you've gotten such buy-in from the community. I mean, like you said, you work with, you know, care managers, you work um, with the city, with the zoning codes, you know, you mm -hmm. work with donors. I mean, you're basically having a touch point, even though there's only been 21 homes so far that you've been able, which is remarkable to have that amount of homes to build in the first place. But this is such a bigger idea that's bigger than just a tiny home for good. How have you um, been impressed with the community response to this initiative? Uh, I, I'm particularly thankful for the previous administration at the city of Syracuse and also for the current um, administration at the city of Syracuse for their forward thinking and just seeing that our work is an important answer to how to end homelessness. And I've also seen from the county level, the fact that we have gotten some support financially to build our houses. I think they have seen that instead of paying money into shelter and emergency services, giving us some support to build these capital funds up front um, saves them money in the long run. So I think people are just starting to see it happening and working. Um, and then the other fact that, that 
you know, when we had our very first ribbon cutting, um, one of the guys who fought hardest against our houses going up in one of our in one of his neighborhoods came to our ribbon cutting and said that there's still tires and televisions in the vacant lot we had wanted to build on. And he said, if we wanted to think about it again, he might be open to talking. And so just like the fact that people are kind of turning a corner on it and that I don't face all that neighborhood pushback anymore, I think is telling of our work and has, you know, really allowed us to, to build quickly and house more and more people faster. How long, I know obviously if you had your way, Andrew, you would have the houses built in a heartbeat and they'd be safe and everything would go flawlessly, but obviously there's challenges that come up along the way. How long does it take you to go from start to finish of actually building and completing one of these houses? Uh, so it varies in the winter. Obviously things take a whole lot longer. It's really hard to get motivated. Like when it's, when it's Syracuse winter and you got to get out there and frame a wall, it's really hard to get motivated. So our volunteerism goes down and, and my motivation goes down. So in the winter, um, depending on the year, it could take anywhere from four to seven months per home, which I know seems like a long time. And it is, it is, but rarely are we just doing one house at a time. We're doing kind of a development of projects at once. Um, so it could be like a development will take us four to seven months. And if folks want to get involved, obviously we recommend visiting your website. It's a tiny home for good.org. There's a sure. link in the upper right. You can make a donation. If someone's listening, if some alum is listening and they really want to give back and support this cause, what's the biggest reason you feel like your organization is, is worthwhile of, of having donors and making a difference? But what I, what I feel like we do more than some other places, not to say that there's other places that don't deserve that donation, but what we focus on is strictly on housing. So sure are some of our tenants, you know, utilize case management services or utilize job training, but our work is dedicated 100% to building and managing housing. And that has been proven over and over to be a solid answer to ending homelessness. So like most MPA grads, if you're data driven and want to support a cause that, you know, is, uh, <laughs> has been proven over and over to really end homelessness, that would be a tiny home for good. The other piece is that we're awfully small, man. Like, you know that your dollar is going to go directly to our services. We have a really small staff and rely a lot on volunteers. So a lot of the donation ends up directly to some of that. work. Before I close a chapter on the tiny home for good and focus on your mm -hmm. Syracuse story, I need to address veterans and, and offering outreach to our veterans who oftentimes will serve our country, come mm -hmm. home and, and for whatever reason, they don't have a house. They find themselves on the streets. Why did you try to shift and pivot and help those people who are serving our country to give them a handout? It seems like it's an easy fit, but no veteran should be on the streets. If you serve no. our country, you should have a home for life. Yeah, I mean, you just said it. It doesn't make any sense for the shelter to have even one person who went abroad to serve, to protect us, to have to come back and live in a shelter or under a bridge. So we're, we're doing our best to maintain half of our population, half of our tenants to be veterans. And Syracuse has done a not like a really, really good job of um, combating veteran homelessness, a lot of money and time and resources and, and serious, serious skill from people across the board have done a lot to bring those numbers down. But I'm still receiving applications for um, men and women veterans facing homelessness to live in some of our houses. So we're going to do our best for the rest of a tiny home for goods, you know, future to rent half of our units to veterans. Well, it's commendable. And I'm so happy to hear you say the support for 
for our nation's veterans, it's just, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's thankless, you know, the work you're doing for them and they could really use the help and as could the rest of the homeless population. So I, I applaud you for your efforts uh, with that segment of the population. Now, switching gears to your Syracuse education, you go to Lemoyne to get your undergraduate and you come here to Maxwell to get your, your MPA, uh, your master's in public administration. How has that degree, how have you noticed the biggest difference that Maxwell has served and benefited you with this career? I think what Maxwell really provided to me, at least, was some clarity into what I wanted to pursue. So when I went into Maxwell, I was really interested in international development. I didn't know quite what capacity I wanted to serve or wanted to work. I knew that I, or I thought that I wanted to work abroad. Um, but what Maxwell provided me that I'm not sure other colleges would was like really tangible view of what a career in international development would look like from someone in my capacity. And when I really thought about what that would be, it would be lots of hours behind a computer, um, probably pretty far away from the people I'd be serving. It made it clear that that was not what I was into. And I really credit some of our, some of the professors at Maxwell for making that clear. That's what the profession is all about. So I, you know, when we were, you know, halfway through the first semester, I was taking these international development classes. I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Like, I don't think it's a really, really important work, but I don't think I know myself well enough to know that I would not be able to stay motivated. So I switched to not-for-profit management and really started thinking about what I knew. And what I knew was um, I knew homelessness. I had developed a bunch of relationships with those facing homelessness and really utilized my Maxwell experience the, you know, last two thirds of the year to think about a tiny home for good and how, I could really make this work. And I would, I really not sure if uh, we would be where we're at, which isn't in a really profound place right now. I love the work that I'm doing now, but I don't think that I would have ended up here had the classes at Maxwell been more theoretical or had been more pie in the sky. I just appreciate the upfront honesty with what the degree was going to offer us. And um, yeah, yeah, that, is, that has been a really powerful gift for me. People can have plans for what they want to do with their life, and, and plans are great. But when you actually get into the, 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 the mire of it and you figure out, you know what, like there's a, lot, there's a lot of benefit in knowing what you don't want to do as much as what there is knowing what you do want to do. And you're not going to get that experience until you actually get your hands dirty and, and get involved with it. So the fact that the rest of the Maxwell you know, faculty with public administration were able to convince, to, to, to put that switch on for you that you, know, you want to go more not-for-profit it's again, it's another one of the tenets of the program, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. It was very interesting to see where my fellow classmates graduated, at, where they went after graduation, but now where they even are now. And I guess if I could go, to go beyond Maxwell School, like when I think about the administration at Syracuse University as a whole, I remember when I was there, um, Chancellor Severud had, had just started and he unrolled this grant program where he was offering $1,500 mini grants to um, people at the school just doing cool stuff and a buddy of mine filmed me talking about the very first iteration of a tiny home for good and i don't know maybe that video is still out there and i'm sure it's totally totally different from what we're currently doing now but i remember having the opportunity to share this dream and we were able to get that cash and that might have that was our first you know money in our bank account it was from that granting program and you know, who knows if, if that grant program didn't exist, if, uh, if we'd still be doing this. And since that point, the chancellor and his wife have been 
um, really supportive in, in our work and, um, and I've just kept close tabs on what a tiny home for good's doing. And, and I, I appreciate it. Besides that initial grant startup, um, can you say some other ways that, you know, Chancellor Severed and Dr. Chen have really, you know, stayed in touch and helped play a role with your success? Yeah. So as you said earlier, I am, despite like our kind of small footprint, really touching a lot of the different areas of Syracuse and, and different kind of organizations and, and people there. So I'm often running into kind of conflict resolution situations. They're a little bit over my head. So I've gone to the chancellor on a number of occasions with things that were out of my wheelhouse at first. And he offered me more than enough time to talk me through it, offer me advice in a way that, you know, he's got so much going on on his plate. He didn't have to do that by any stretch, but he did, you know, you know, he'd take an hour out of his day to talk and, and he's done this on multiple occasions and it's just, it's unexpected, but, but gosh, is it welcome. Love to hear the support from the leadership on down to support. We, we always talk about, you know, there's a common hashtag for social media about, you know, you want to be orange and show what it means to be orange. And that's why when I heard about your company, A Tiny Home for Good and the work you were doing, you embody what that selfless spirit is about that we try to find for our alumni, people that care more about making their community better than when they inherited it, where they found it when they came to school. And I, I'd be very hard pressed to say that you haven't made the, the community a better place with the lives that you've helped to transform with your company. You mentioned when you first started this, how you had to slow your goals a little bit and you know things, you had to kind of reevaluate the, the goals of, of the company and, and how things have kind of evolved. Mm -hmm. If you look at the future, where do you see the next five to 10 years playing out with a tiny home for good? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think five years ago, I would have told you, you know, we'd be across the United States doing this, that, and the third, but I really want to see more of, in five to 10 years, I want to have more Dales. I want to have more of our tenants who are intimately connected to our work, who we might be hiring to do our building, who, you know, we might be trusting to take on some of those responsibilities that I'm now leaning on some of our project managers to do. And it's my hope that we can provide some long-term employment to our tenants. That would be a, that would be a serious future um, that I would want to be a part of. That being said, we're still going to be cranking out five to 10 homes every single year, maybe more. Um, and once a week I get a note from someone across the country asking me, how do you do this? Asking me, how do you start a tiny home village or, or start building tiny homes for people facing homelessness? And I feel those calls, and maybe one day someone will hire us to go out and consult and then I can send Dale to go do that. And that's a future that I want to be a part of for sure. Well, Andrew, I know, you know, I want to ask one more question about your Syracuse sure. tenure. Um, what kind of fun did you have? What were some of your activities on campus? I know graduate students are a little bit different than the undergraduates, but you obviously knew the area from Lemoyne and, right. you know, you had a big impact uh, in the city of Syracuse. What are some of your favorite memories from being on the Syracuse campus? All right, so I'm going to be honest. I think the MPA program particularly is super close-knit because it's a one-year program. It's people coming from all around the world to be a part of this really special thing. And I, unfortunately, was you know already pretty well embedded here in Syracuse. I was working at the shelter at nights. and But some of my favorite experiences certainly were just you know playing soccer with some of those people who um, showed up just for this one year in Syracuse. And another 
piece that definitely stands out was this small, small uh, service opportunity that I invited some of our classmates to be a part of. And we had seven people who were out doing, um, doing work at one of uh, the local community centers that I've been a part of for a long time. And, you know, that was on a weekend. They didn't have to. I mean, I, the MPA program certainly has a reputation for being difficult with a lot of homework and that was the case, but people still showed up for a full day on a Saturday and it was because they wanted to help, but it was also because they were curious. And I think that that's a quality that Maxwell just really does a good job in drawing out of people, this sense of curiosity. And I remember that weekend fondly and it was six years ago now. You know, it's commendable, Andrew, and I really am so impressed with the work that you've done. I can't wait to see what the future holds you know, for a tiny home for good. It's, it's just been remarkable to tell your story here on the podcast. Again, if our alumni want to get involved, make a donation, you can go to a tinyhomeforgood.org to give back to this worthwhile not-for-profit. 21 homes so far have been built for Syracuse homeless residents who are facing the problem of homelessness, and this is giving them a leg up to really start their lives over again. Andrew, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Uh, best of luck for you moving forward. Thank you, John. Take care. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.